That happened in Vietnam, it happened in Iraq, it happened in Afghanistan. America has mistaken technological prowess for military might, and it doesn't work like that. We're really good at smashing things. We're not really good at guerrilla warfare, and we're not, you know, we don't, what, did, what were we fighting for over there? Today is Monday, August 30th. The year is 2021. This is No Easy Answers, and I'm your host, Jules Taylor. Today, like all days, I have no easy answers for you. Well, thank you for tuning in from wherever you happen to be listening. My name is Jules Taylor. This is No Easy Answers, and I am delighted to have you with us for today's episode. No Easy Answers is a podcast about politics, philosophy, and the human condition, and we are 100% listener-supported. That means we don't have any sponsors, we don't have any advertisements, and the closest thing you will hear to a commercial is me asking you to visit our Patreon page, where in exchange for a couple of bucks... You can unlock lots of cool bonus content, and you can help keep the lights on and the coffee flowing for all the ongoing research, writing, interviewing, and producing that goes into each and every one of these episodes. No worries, if you can't commit a couple of dollars right now, that's okay, but if you have enjoyed some of the episodes of the podcast you've heard so far, do us a solid and leave us a five-star review inside of Apple Podcasts. That helps bring new listeners to the show, it tells the algorithms at Apple that listeners like the show, and then those algorithms recommend the podcast to folks who have not heard the show before. We've got at least one more episode in the works with the guys over at Asset Horizon. I think this has been a really fun arch for the show to take, and it's been such a joy for me to get a chance to get to know each of the co-hosts from the Asset Horizon podcast a little bit better. You know, we had the two episodes with Craig, one of those we were joined by the anonymous psychoanalyst, The Stranger. We had the episode about Carl Schmidt with Matt, and the episode we just published about thought, disability, and refusal with Will. The last one we have to do is with Adam, and that episode should be released in the next couple of weeks. As always, we will release that episode a little bit early for the folks who support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. And thank you again to all of our listeners who gave us some feedback on the last episode. We love getting listener feedback, and so we've set up a number of ways for you to reach out and let us know your thoughts on the show. And so we welcome you to contact us over Discord, Reddit, and Twitter. Links to all of those are in the show notes. So, this show swerves in and out of current events in the news cycle, and today I'm happy to bring you an interview with a returning guest, friend of the podcast, the fabulous Laura Jadid. Listeners might recall her first appearance on the podcast when we began what ultimately was a six-episode arch on fascism. Laura and I discussed the alt-right in episode 28. She was living in Portland, Oregon at the time and working as an independent journalist covering the alt-right and the uprising happening there last summer. Previous to that, she had embedded herself within the far-right group known as Patriot Prayer as an observer, where she learned about their recruitment methods and propaganda. All the information she uncovered is incredibly valuable to anti-fascists everywhere. Her thesis, entitled Making Monsters, Right-Wing Creation of the Liberal Enemy, 
is available on her website, laurajadid.com, along with all of her writings. Laura was kind enough to send us a reading of her latest entry, entitled, Afghanistan Meant Nothing. Listeners might already be familiar with her most recent entry, as she wrote it in a series of angry tweets that she fired off, and those words have now landed her on MSNBC, NPR's All Things Considered, and the Marianne Williamson podcast. You know, I read her tweets about an hour after she sent them, and I knew that I wanted to have her on the show again to have a wide-ranging conversation, obviously about these last days of the war, but also about the parallels that folks have been noticing between the war in Afghanistan and the Vietnam War. I want to send a huge thank you to Laura for coming on the show again, for sending us the reading, and also I want to let listeners know that you can unlock the video portion of this interview on our Patreon right now. That's just some of the cool bonus content you can find on the No Easy Answers Patreon. And this interview, the video portion, is available on Laura's Patreon as well. And of course, links for those are in the show notes. So let's get to Laura's reading of her article, Afghanistan Meant Nothing, followed by a conversation with Laura Jadid. Boy, howdy, am I having a lot of feelings about Afghanistan today. I deployed there twice, once in 2008 and once in 2009 and 10. It was already obvious that the Taliban would sweep through the very instant that we left, and here we are today. I know how bad the Taliban is. I know what they do to women and little boys. I know what they're going to do to the interpreters and the people who cooperated with us. It's awful. It's bad. But we are leaving. And all I feel is grim relief. Afghanistan is a dusty, beige nightmare of a place full of proud, brave people who did not fucking want us there. We called them hajis and worse. And they were better than we were. Braver and stronger and smarter. I remember going through the phones of the people we detained and finding clip after clip of Bollywood musicals. Women singing in fields of flowers. Rarely did I find anything incriminating. I remember finding propaganda footage cut together from the Soviet invasion and our own operation enduring whatever, and laughing about how stupid the Afghans were to not know we aren't the Russians, and then eventually realizing I was the stupid one. I remember how every year the U.S. would have to decide how to deal with the opium fields. You could let them alone, and then the Taliban would shake the farmers down and use the money to buy weapons. Or... You could carpet bomb the fields, and then the farmers would join the Taliban. Or you could give the farmers fertilizer as an incentive to grow wheat instead of opium poppy, and then the farmers would sell the fertilizer to the Taliban, who used it to make explosives for IEDs that could destroy a million-dollar MRAP and maim everyone inside. I remember we weren't allowed to throw batteries away, because people who worked on base would go through the trash and collect hundreds of dead batteries and wire them together so they had just enough juice for one charge and use that charge to detonate an IED. And I remember the look on my roommate's face after she got back from cutting the dead bodies of two soldiers out of a Humvee that got blown up by an IED that I have always imagined was made with fertilizer from an opium farmer and detonated with a hundred thrown out batteries. I remember an Afghan kid who worked in the DFAC, or the cafeteria, 
a guy we called cowboy always wore this cowboy hat and I'm with stupid t-shirt someone had given him always with a big smile high school age cowboy was a good student and he wanted to go to college in America but there weren't colleges that took Afghans their education system was too shit no program to help kids like him I looked I wonder if he's dead now for serving us food and dreaming of something different but if Cowboy is dead, then he died a long time ago. And if Cowboy is dead, it's our fault for going there in the first place, giving his family the option of trusting us. We are the least trustworthy people on the planet. We use people up and throw them away like it's nothing. And now we are leaving, and the predictable thing is happening. The Taliban is surging in and taking it all back. They have what you can't buy or train. They have patience and a bloody-mindedness that warrants more respect than we ever gave them. I am team get the fuck out of Afghanistan, which, as a friend pointed out to me today, has always been Team Taliban. It's Team Taliban or Team Stay Forever. There is no third team. So I'm sitting here reading these sad fucking tweets about the suffering in Afghanistan and the horror of the encroaching Taliban and how awful it is that this is happening, but I can't stop feeling this grim happiness. Like, finally, you fuckers. Finally, you have to see it, too. No more blown-up soldiers. No more Bollywood videos on phones whose owners are getting shipped God knows where. No more hypocrisy. No more pretending it meant anything. It didn't. It didn't mean a fucking thing. So, uh, since the last time we spoke, you've had an article uh, in the Washington Post where you were featured. Uh, a couple nights ago, I caught you on The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. And I have to say that I, I really appreciated how you got like the last uh, the last word. You got the last kind of jab in there, which was was really wonderful. And uh, and so I want to ask you, since your, since your article and your uh, online presence is really blowing up and you're on national television. Uh, I want to ask what these last few days have been like for you. Uh, yeah, it's been wild. It's been, <laughs> it's been real weird. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> look, I'm having a blast. I'm not going to sit here and uh, pretend that I'm not having a blast when I am, but, um, yeah, it's been, it's been weird. Um, I, I seriously dashed those tweets off in 10 angry minutes and, um, and, and then this happened. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's a little surreal. I, it's going to die down soon, which is good. I'm, I'm tired, but it's been really fun. <laughs> you will once again uh, be able to scroll to the top of your notifications. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Live the dream someday. <laughs> <laughs> right. What was that? Um, what was the experience like of going on MSNBC? Like, uh, uh, what was that? What were your feelings in the moment when they when they contacted you and asked you and, and, and going into those moments in the interview? I mean, I, I again, surreal. I was just like, oh, OK, I guess I could. And I mean, I was I was nervous. I was I don't know if anyone could tell how nervous I was, but I was uh, real, real nervous. But, you know, it, I feel like I'm, I'm happy with how I did. I am happy about that. That last jab. I was sitting there while they were kind of, you know, jacking Biden off and going like, oh, I got some shit to say. All right. Like, yeah. we're going to work that in. <laughs> 
<laughs> awesome. Well, I I am so happy to see your like to see your spot blowing up, to see uh, you know, people taking notice of your writings and uh and I'm just so happy about all of your success and it's it's a real point of pride um that like you know that I had you on the podcast when I did, and I was like, "Oh, you know, one of my guests is a as a Washington Post article now, and and she's on MSNBC, and and uh, uh, you know, it just for me, I was just like, it just makes my heart swell to see uh, you know people taking notice of you and stuff. Um, Thank you. Yeah, um, I also you know. I've been thinking about you a lot lately. Um, you know, I sent you a message and told you about how after our last episode when you were on, uh, the subsequent episodes really, like, they... Uh, I tried to approach that with some some things I picked up on in our conversation. And, and I, I think I realized something that I that I wanted to, stay, to, to say from the outset of this conversation. Uh, and I, I'm going to try and read a little bit of this, but I, I, I don't know if this is... if I even worded this correctly. Um... But I think one of the many reasons why I find you, Laura Jadid, fascinating is that when I reflect on my life, um, I often feel like my life would have been completely different had I joined the military. Um, and that decision to not join the military represents a sort of fork in the road. And I've often wondered about the person that I would have been had I chosen that path. And when I think of that like alternative version of myself, I tend to believe that person would have had some pretty awful politics, uh, maybe even a form of politics that would be completely opposite to, to mine, to the politics I have now, um, or at least, at the very least, like, very antagonistic to my decidedly Marxist way of organizing the world. Um, so here you are with your latest article, and I feel like you stand in direct contradiction to this alternative timeline version of myself that exists only in concept inside of my mind. Because uh, I was born in 1983, and that places me in the high school graduating class of 2002. Oh, jeez. So, yeah. So, in the year 2000, being a junior at the time, I began to seriously consider the question, how will I pay for college? And my family was a military family, and all signs seemed to point me in the direction of joining the military to become eligible for the GI Bill. And an Army recruiter at my high school enrolled me in a program for 17-year-olds, all of which seemed simple enough. I mean, you, would, you wouldn't join, you couldn't join until you were 18, but in the meantime, with permission from your parents, they would put you up in a hotel, give you the ASVAB test, they would let you choose your MOS depending upon your score, mm -hmm. and upon signing the papers with them, you would go off to basic training the summer of your junior year, followed by entering immediately into service when you graduate. Now, looking back on it, I can recognize, obviously, this is a predatory and evil practice, uh, but at the time, I came very close to signing off on everything, but I just couldn't, for whatever reason, sign off on that. Um, so when I look back at September 11th, I, I feel confident that if I had signed off on the Army's accelerated program for 17-year-olds, um, I most likely would have been sent to Afghanistan in the summer of 2002. Um, so after I read your article with your, with your words still resonating, I began to wonder if this alternative version of myself would have come to understand a characterization of history that would stand in agreement with my actual views. Um, so I, I, I think that's really why I find you fascinating is that like you have found your way to egalitarian uh, politics, just clearly on the left, um, but you took, you know, the you took this path that really was not maybe conducive to all those things. So I'm wondering if maybe you could speak a little bit about 
how you arrived at your politics through this sort of course that that I mean, statistically speaking, you should be a you know a, a right wing military supporting troop supporting sort of conservative at this point. I, and I know that's right. That's definitely the cliche. And there's a lot of it. I mean, there are, there are leftist vets too, but no, it's uh, not enough. And uh, I mean, but it is weird because I mean, I, you know, I grew up in objectivism, which is the philosophy of Ayn Rand, very individualistic. And I joined the army out of patriotism, but I mean, the army is what began me on the path to radicalization, like flat out. I don't know if I would be who I am or have these politics without the army. I, it's funny you say that because I have an alternate version of me that went to a state school <laughs> and I, I feel like that person has significantly worse politics than I do. Uh, I don't think that she ever met any of the people she met or saw how bad the war was. I, I think that she joined a think tank and, you know, God only knows what she's doing. Nothing good. So, you know, what I mean, seeing how fucked up Afghanistan was and how badly we were doing was like the first time I, I realized that I'd been lied to, or at least there'd been a misunderstanding. And, you know, the obvious next question is, well, what else have I been lied to about? And, you know, it took me about 10 years to, to get here, but that was the start of it was Afghanistan. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so you had this line in your latest article titled Afghanistan meant nothing, where you talked about how, uh, you would go through their phones and find certain uh, things that were not incriminating, but uh, things about Russia and 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 things about like I, I guess the the history in Afghanistan of uh, of the United States funding the Mujahideen of of, of uh, them fighting off the sort of atheist invaders, and uh, I was wondering if maybe you could talk about those moments when you discovered that and and how you slowly came around to understanding that like there were real gaps in 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 what you had as a characterization of history at that time yeah i mean it just on the surface of it it seemed so absurd and we all you know we all made fun of it you know you have to right you have to laugh and one of the ways you can laugh in war is to make fun of the enemy so we'd find these things and we'd be like look at these guys like here's a here's footage of like some russian soldiers like flame throwing a house and then here's us just marching like these idiots like they're being lied to they think that we're the flame throwing no and then it, it took a while like gradually kind of as i because i did intelligence analysis so it became a little bit clear to me that like a lot of the people that we were fighting weren't like hardcore islamist taliban types or like al-qaeda types they were like kids who's parents had probably fought the Soviets and now they were fighting us. It was just like this, this slow realization that these weren't radicals. They just were, they were just soldiers, you know, and then looking at it from that perspective going, well, it's, it is actually the, the same thing. It's a large power coming into a small country and telling people how to live their lives. And I don't know. I, I respect people that say no to that, even though I I think the Taliban is awful and what they're doing is awful. And I wouldn't want to live in that society. And I have a lot of I have a lot of notes, but um, self-determination matters. Colonialism doesn't work. It's immoral and it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned there's like team stay for fucking never and team get the fuck out. And there is no third team. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring this up because it was uh uh, so I know that you're a Marianne Williamson fan. Yes. And I don't know if you saw that recent tweet where she was like, you know, normally I, I don't, there are very rare occasions where I support military interventionalism, but it, given the way the Taliban treats women, uh, you know, th then she supports this. And I, oh, I just, God, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That it was sucks. 
It was really bad, dude. Like I, yeah, I, I, I feel like there's like, I mean, she's certainly not helping with this, but there is this sort of uh, uh, this demographic of people that believe that uh, due to the way that uh, that the Taliban treats women, our intervention is justified. And uh, and I just can't help but see this sort of societal currents of like woke feminism uh, doing some sort of gymnastics or acrobatics to ultimately end up in support of imperialism. Yeah, um, I didn't I didn't know she was aboard that train, but I've definitely seen that train. And there have been a few comments on my post about that. Uh, I mean, my first statement would be that we should probably stop being friends with Saudi Arabia if we suddenly care about women's rights. That, you know, seems like yeah. a good first step that we could do without putting troops in the ground in a foreign country. But that's not I mean, the, the larger point is that, yeah, you can use something like that to justify imperialism. And yeah, it's it's a weird, dangerous road because you, the other way you can veer into apologetics, which I don't, I don't, you know, that what the Taliban does with, with women is inexcusable. And, but we can't fix that. We'd like to, but we can't. We tried for 20 years and, you know, it would be nice if we lived in the kind of world where you could wave a magic wand and then all women are free, but we don't, we don't live in that world. So what if we did what we can do, which is stop being friends with Saudi Arabia? Like, let's start there. Yeah, I, I definitely had that thought of like, uh, you know, they certainly don't treat women well in Saudi Arabia and uh, they, they, you know, hack journalists up and stuff like that. But but also I, I had this thought of like, uh, you know, uh, there are some really awful cases coming out of like Fort Hood and I believe it's Fort Hood in Killeen, Texas. Yeah. And, and and so I, you know, I, I, I feel like on, on one level, it's like, why is there an expectation of our military to have noble intentions? Like they're, you know, like, why do we expect, we don't send the military in to, to liberate, you know, women. We send the military in to uh, reinforce our, our resource extraction or, or our uh, military industrial complex. Uh, uh, you know, we... We don't certainly send them in to liberate women, but I, but on the other side of that as well, uh, I just think that, uh, you know, with the U.S. military as well, it's just not, we're not treating our women well enough to, I mean, we, apparently yeah. like this, this woman in Colleen, like her body was chopped up and stuff and hidden, and, and so there's like really horrific things happening that way, and I, so I just had to get your take on that, because I, yeah. um, and I, and I don't mean to, to to call you out on the Marianne Williams stuff. Uh, oh no, I, uh, no, I, I mean I I'm just... not. I'm just really sad to hear that. I haven't been. I've actually been kind of trying to avoid Twitter just because things are a little bit crazy on there. And uh, yeah, no, that's really disappointing. But um, but yeah, I mean, as to the, I, I mean, I will say I do think there's a pretty big difference between like the Taliban that like systematically oppresses women and like the military where there is a culture of, sure. you know, sexism and sexual harassment and and violence occasionally. Uh, towards women. But yeah, I, it is worth uh, wondering whether maybe we should start in our own backyard on some of this stuff. Uh, yeah. Because that's something um, we can actually control. Can you, um, so I know you said you've been trying to stay away from Twitter a little bit, um, but I, I can't help but pick up this parallel because um, I'm doom scrolling all day. And um, one thing that I, uh, that I couldn't help but notice was this parallel between how on September 11th, you know, there were people that started with people like jumping out of windows. And then, and then I, I couldn't help but see a parallel from when people were climbing on the cargo plane. And I was wondering if you, if you picked up on that sort of uh, oh, wow. a parallel as well. 
you know, I hadn't, but that's haunting. You're not wrong. There's something really ugly symbolically about that horrible. I mean, that this, it gets to the waste of it. I think it's like, we, what have we done in 20 years? You know, what's changed? And yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I, this whole thing, I mean, it's from the parallels of like leaving uh, Hanoi, uh, you know, and with those images happening. Yeah. And um, I mean, you even spoke about how like, uh, you know, Nixon got his interval. <laughs> You know, yeah, uh, but we didn't really get any interval, <laughs> you know, like a couple days, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 we got you know, images of like whole rooms just stuffed with with rifles, and uh, and, and I mean, uh, apparently, they're, they're selling commandeered U.S. military vehicles now on oh like e on, on the internet or something. Uh, so it's it's just really wild what we're seeing coming out of Afghanistan at this point. Um, and, uh, and and so, you know, all that being said, I mean, the last few days when you're watching all this, uh, I mean, I feel like there's got to be some sort of resurging emotions, obviously from your article and stuff, you know, you talked about Cowboy, you talked about uh, some of the traumatic incidents that, that left lingering awful memories with your with your roommates, uh, and, and, and this sort of like... Um, this this way of like anything that you did in the field there you know whether it was like whether you let uh you gave fertilizer to the farmers whether you uh didn't pick up the 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 spare batteries or whether you uh even helped the people it would still like find this way of coming back to to injure you or to to, to hurt your cause um I, I just wonder if like I mean, you've been thinking these all through these years. You haven't just, but was this just kind of a flood to the top that that spurred this uh, this thread that you wrote? Yeah, I mean, it was weird. I'd been I'd been feeling bad all day, and I didn't really understand why. And then I, I had a conversation with somebody that I, I didn't necessarily agree with, and I didn't. I was like, maybe this is about Afghanistan. So I reached out to my best friend and was like, man, what do you think about all this? And he's the one that said the Team Taliban thing. Like there, there are two teams. Mm, you know, there's Team yeah. Taliban and Team Stay Forever. There's no third team. And after having that conversation, I just like, I just started thinking about it, and I started, you know, I got angry, and just in ten minutes, I just kind of sat down and was like, ah. You know, I just I really like my thought when I said it was like, well, I don't know if anyone's going to like this, but screw it. Like, why not? And then and then, um, yeah, it, it, it's all been very weird ever since. But yeah, no, it was uh, it was like a lot of things. I was just trying to figure out how I felt in the moment. Like I it's complicated and bad. I don't know a single veteran that I know who doesn't feel complicated and bad right now. Mm. Well, you know, I um, so I, I, I had senior thread the night before and and the next morning i was uh i was talking with max alvarez of the real news network i produced the working people podcast and so we go back and forth on that stuff a lot and i was like hey did you see this article by laura jadid and uh and he was like oh yeah i did and he shot me back this article that he republished of you um Hi. so i was just really happy to see that that max had also separately from me had picked that up and uh and ran with it and republished it and 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 thought it was powerful and um i mean i i just i thought it i mean it floored me when i read it and and your words like i think i saw it maybe half an hour to 45 minutes after you published it and mm -hmm. um and i sat there and kind of resonated with it and then wrote you that article um and i think that 
the reason why this article or these this Twitter rant that you went on is 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 so popular and why people have attached to it um, is because I think that there's a uh, there's a very matter of fact sort of compassion that you have uh, in this article that shows the complexities and the nuance and, and and just some of the like the raw emotion behind it. Like you're not supposed to feel good about these things and you're not sugarcoating things and you are really, you know, giving people the nuance and, and the uh, I think people are really looking for that. And, and so rarely do we get uh, an account from someone who's been on the ground level that way that that presents that throws these nuances back in into our face to where we can't help but have to stare at them and not ignore them. Um, but I think that. Part of what I tried to take forward in the subsequent episodes after our last uh, after our last uh, episode when we had John was that I just noticed this this um, this sort of fearless compassion of like understanding that like that 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 just as you studied the alt right that these are human beings that are that are influenced that are that are led astray or whatever but they are they are still at their core a human being uh, that. Uh, that has certain emotions and, 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 and they're not, I mean, they're worthy of some compassion if only to better understand them. And so I see like a parallel of your approach with that to just the things that you've lately uh, written on Afghanistan. I'm really glad to hear it because that would be my ideal outcome is to, to express that, that there is, you know, the, there's, it's complicated and that there are a lot of humans involved. And I mean, I think, it's, it's that's something that I've developed over the years. I do think it probably started there. And I mean, then it, you know, really some other things happened in the subsequent years that, that made that really core to who I try to be. But yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing about intelligence collection and analysis is that you, you see, you see that you see conversations, you know, because you're, you're picking up everything, right? So you see conversations about all kinds of just random stuff, you know, it does, it's not always, you know, we're going to, we're going to blow up whatever it's sometimes it's just people talking and it's hard to ignore the thing about the Bollywood videos. Uh, I mean, that of all the things I, I think that haunts me the most, like, because mm. knowing that the people who owned those phones were, you know, nothing good was happening to those people. Um, and just seeing like this, to be in this, this, and by the way, this is a digression, but people have been coming after me for calling Afghanistan a dusty beige nightmare because they get on google.com and they find some pretty pictures of like central Afghanistan and good for y'all. You're right. Some parts are pretty. The part I was in was not. And the part that these soldiers, you know, these, these, um, Taliban or, you know, Afghani soldiers were in was also not. And these are people who live in this, this desolate place and on their phones are these you know fields of just hyper colorful flowers and women not in the cobs singing everyone happy and smiling and it's like how can you you can't escape the fact that that is a human desire for something just good just something good you know like how do you it's real hard to hate someone when you see that yeah i mean and that's you know it comes down to like uh you know i think there's uh you have to look people in the face. You have to stare at their humanity when you engage them. You know, like there's some, like Todd May uh, has this rule. Uh, Todd May is like a philosopher guy who's, I've read a bunch of books by him because I, I just think the world of Todd May. Um, but he has this book, uh, 
uh, where he wrote some like rules for life and not like a Jordan Peterson kind of shit, but like a, like a really like good rules to kind of follow. And, um, and one of them was like when he's mad at his child, he, he, he won't admonish that child or, or be angry at them without looking at them in their face. Because when you mm. acknowledge that humanity behind that, um, it creates a buffer between like what your anger can inspire you to do and a more measured approach. And, uh, and I think it's um, ever since we spoke, I, I've been really attempting to infuse a bit of that look me in the face sort of uh, acknowledgement of humanity uh, with wherever I'm researching. Um, so, you know, just, I, I really think that I picked that up from our conversation and I'm really grateful for, for that. Um, and uh, so, so, I mean, and, and I mean, obviously it's like, it's important to like, when we look at the alt-right to not be too compassionate and we spoke about sure. that, you know, yep. um, yeah. But it's 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 really wild to to think that here we are. It's it's 2021, and the parallels with with the Vietnam War are one thing. But I just in this moment right now, I'm not sure that many people are really reckoning with the fact that the world's most powerful military has yet again been beat back by the most desperate and and ill-equipped. Uh, you know, army uh, on the on the planet. I mean, so yeah. I, I just wonder if, um, as a veteran, can you maybe speak to what does it mean that the goddamn military is defeated by you know the most desperate army on on the planet? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I've I've thought about that a lot because they were you know they were beating us in two thousand nine ten. They've been you know they were beating us before and they've beaten us after and. Um, I, I think it really speaks to what, like, the, the, the Afghans have something that the United States does not have, and that's patience and just dedication. I mean, you can go into other stuff, like, you know, a guerrilla war is always easier, and that, you know, if you have the support of the populace, and you don't have to win, you just have to not lose, all that stuff. But to me, it's like this patience and this tenacity, and it doesn't matter how expensive your equipment is, how much money you throw at it. I mean, to me, like the, the, the ultimate symbol is the thing with the fertilizer bombs, with the battery detonators, blowing up million dollar MRAPs, which are like Humvees on steroids, like destroying them. I mean, how do you fight an enemy like that? That is an enemy that will never quit. That is, that makes the most of what they have that is used to hardship and privation and isn't afraid of it. And I mean, that happened in Vietnam. It happened in Iraq. It happened in Afghanistan. America has mistaken technological prowess for military might, and it doesn't work like that. We're really good at smashing things. We're not really good at at, at guerrilla warfare, and we're not, you know, we don't, what did, what were we fighting for over there? You know, what, were, what was right. our, they were fighting for their country, for their independence, which they've had since Alexander the Great. Like, what the hell were we fighting for? You can't compete. Yeah, you know, uh, there is a, um, I think it was an, an article by uh, Domenico Lacerdo, or it might have been Roderick Day writing about or citing uh, Domenico Lacerdo, but he talked about how, um, how how South American economies, in air quotes, collapse. And it's mm-hmm. not that they collapse, it's that they are suffocated economically by um, yeah. embargoes and, and, and uh, you know, so... The point is, is that um, how do you suffer? How do you suffocate a country that like 
is already like out of air. You know, yeah. like oh these my tools. God, seriously. Like, how do you? That doesn't apply here, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing I was thinking, uh, you know, during the Vietnam movement or during the Vietnam War, I believe there was like a. I think there was a relationship between the anti-war movement happening at home and the uh, sort of protracted people's war happening out there. And their connectivity is, lies in the fact that as as the anti-war movement gained more momentum, uh, it, it was draining the sort of political capital that America had towards continuing to fight in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I, I look at Afghanistan now, and I think that, I mean, where is the anti-war movement right now? You know, like, I I, I feel like, one, that we've been in Afghanistan so long that we've exhausted our own anti-war protests. And two, um, this is an example of how, even if there is not an anti-war movement draining the political capital of an imperialist uh, aggressor, um, it doesn't matter, man. It's like this... uh, what the taliban has in terms of their tenacity and determination and 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 the 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 knowledge of how to be miserable like you know um so i so i just wonder if um i mean do you have any thoughts on like uh, where's the fucking anti-war movement and and even i'm just saying that even without like like an aggressive anti-war movement here at home we've still lost the fucking war yeah yeah uh, I mean, I know that, you know, there was one back when we were going into Iraq, there was a small one. And um, yeah, and then it just kind of, I don't know, it is weird, right? Like that Vietnam spawned such a, a reaction and this didn't. And I don't, I mean, maybe it was residual 9-11 stuff. I mean, I think there was this outpouring of, of what felt like righteous anger. And then as that cooled, I think maybe there was some embarrassment. I'm not sure. But um, I mean, mm. I do at least think that, like, even if there isn't a big protest movement, it does seem like at least for right now, the the war fever has calmed down somewhat, I, even though people are drumming, you know, drumming to get back into Afghanistan. I I do feel like there are a lot of a lot more people who like maybe don't. It's hard to be like, no, we can't go back there. Let the Taliban oppress women and, you know, do horrible things to little boys. But like, I think that's the sentiment. I think that. I mean, I hope, right? I, at least for another decade or two, maybe we can avoid wanting to go to war. Yeah. Do you, Do you think that the American psyche is able to like withstand not having an enemy? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't. It's real bad. Like, yeah. I mean, every every part of our political system is predicated on Cold War mentality. Like, that's why the parties are what they are today. Like. I don't remember. I mean, I've, I rant about this to everyone, but like the evangelicals, the libertarians and the neoconservatives, like those things don't necessarily go together. Like there's no reason why they have to be together. The reason they're together is because all three of them oppose the Soviet Union. And so mm. everything about the way our system is structured is structured around the idea of the great Satan, this enemy. And yeah, I mean, we, we floundered around in the 90s and then 2001 was kind of a return to form. And I think that like in a lot of ways, the rise of the far right and like the really like vicious infighting in America. And this is not a both sides. I want to be very clear. There is an evil side in there and it's the far right. But I think that the reason that has become so much of a thing in part is because we need an enemy. Like we don't know how to function without one. Certainly the right doesn't know. And um, so it's got to be the Democrats if it isn't, you know, the Islamists or the commies, like we can be the commies now. It's fine. (laughs) 
the damn Stalinists, all of us tankies, every single one. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I, I want to ask you about this, and this might be a little afield, um, but I, I've been thinking a lot about the the way uh, social memory, the way we characterize uh, uh, the, our the way we characterize the historical memory, and and where I'm going with this is that like, so like if um, if I was going to talk about uh, say the Vietnam War, I might choose to queue up like CCR or something, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 so there's like this entire like montage of like CCR and the helicopter and the Vietnam War, the ant and, and the way that we characterize this memory. Um, you know, it Woodstock '69 is kind of a part of that historical memory, and then there was this new documentary called uh, "Peace, Love, and Rage" or something that came out mm -hmm. that showed Woodstock '99. And for me, what I was getting out of that was that okay, so Woodstock '99, we're in this weird, uh, not at war interim, where we don't have an enemy, and we see this sort of like toxic masculinity, angst, you know, this sort of like middle class, uh, 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 just, just anger and resentment, and and like like there was some sort of like emotional negative brewing happening in the, in the social sphere um and and obviously woodstock 99 thanks to this uh documentary we can see hey this was really not not a good thing at all right uh there was uh a lot of bad things that happened during woodstock 99 but it got me thinking about you know the actual festival of woodstock 69 and how that's characterized and and, and so this leads me into thinking the way the vietnam war is characterized and the parallels we have going on with afghanistan right now and so, given the sort of historical rose-colored glasses that we tend to view things from, I wonder if if you have any thoughts on what how, or how we might characterize these moments now leaving Afghanistan uh, in the future. Yeah, I mean, I suspect it's going to be the Kabul airport footage. I can't imagine it being anything else. You know, that is horrifying and and just. I mean, it's hard to. It's hard. I haven't actually, uh, I haven't actually watched the footage of the people clinging to the hell. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the planes. I know about it. I know what it is. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't been able to to watch it. And I will, but um, I mean, if there's ever an illustration, I just hope it's not. A, it doesn't become an illustration of why we should have stayed. I hope it's an illustration of that we we lied to people and they thought they could trust us and they couldn't. Can you talk a little bit about why we are the least trustworthy people on the planet? <laughs> It's just we just over over and over again we say that we're going to come in and bring freedom and democracy and that's a whole other thing but people who believe us risk their futures to help us do that and then we leave and we were always going to leave and again i am pro i am team get the fuck out of afghanistan but we you know we promised these people that we'd build them a nation where they would be okay and they wouldn't be killed for helping us and not only did we fail to do that we failed to get them out and it's not like we didn't know this was this was coming it's not like biden didn't have time to prepare and this is the this is my criticism of biden which i think is shared by most people is that he the fact that we didn't get people out who helped us that we didn't you know make every effort to get them the hell out of that country is is criminal like, because we promised them something, and then we were like, "Oh, ha, lol, no, now we're lying. Goodbye." You know? Yeah, one of the, one of the most awful, fucking, terrible things I've been seeing online are these sort of conservatives being like, uh, "Hey, uh, you think it's bad right now? Wait till they make us start taking in Afghan immigrants or refugees." And oh um, my god! 
and and, and to me there's like this uh like hidden in the subtext there is like this wanting for this to happen so that there's a clear objective like scapegoat in that like they're, they're almost like wanting these things to happen in order to um so i yeah i mean i i, I agree with you i mean we should be taking in refugees from that country we should be helping them um but there is also this sentiment of like we can't fight a war that they are unwilling to fight themselves mm -hmm. and and so i wonder if you uh do you get the feeling like we're just kind of darvo fucking victim blaming uh in a lot of ways at this oh, point yeah absolutely we are um i mean i <sighs> I think I said this on MS, uh, the MSNBC thing, but it's like we we it's not that they're not good fighters. They're very good fighters. They just didn't want to fight for the government we gave them and not enough mm. people did. And, you know, the Taliban didn't they didn't have to fight because not enough people didn't want them to do this. It doesn't mean that you don't help the people who you know stuck their necks out to help the United States. you got to do that. But you'll notice we're not airlifting millions of people out. You know, it's thousands. And that matters. Like. Yeah, and it is it's the idea like, you know, we handed you a country and you left it, you know, you fucked up like, no, we we came in, we told you what to want. We set up a puppet regime. I mean, my unit did this thing where we we were there to train. And this was the 82nd Airborne. The 82nd Airborne knows how to do one thing and it isn't training. And so we would go out and do the missions for the Afghan National Army and then say they did it. And we like helped a little bit like we didn't give them shit. You know, we gave them what we wanted and then we said, okay, you got to like it now. No, they don't. They don't have to do it. They don't have to do that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's wild. I mean, we you're right. We came in and we gave them what we wanted. Like, it's okay. You can have any government you want as long as it's the government we uh, we chose for you that works with us, you know. Um, and, and it's kind of, what do you think of this whole, like... Uh, I've heard there's remarks of, like, the Taliban, like, Afghanistan will be open for business. That's um, very interesting to me. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, my friend thinks, and I think he's right, that um, this is a play to try to get into the Chinese sphere of influence. Like, the Chinese, you know, they, they do their own atrocities, and you're allowed to do atrocities in the Chinese sphere of influence. But um, you, you got to be a little subtle about it. And I don't think Afghanistan wants to be hanging out in the breeze like it was. I think that this is a... It's a PR stunt. I mean, and then you see things like them, you know, firing live rounds into crowds of protesters and, you know, killing and maiming people, which, you know, I won't go into the United States' uh, approach to, to protest here. But, you know, I think we can all agree that that's pretty brutal. And, uh, you know, we'll see if they live up to it. But I, I do think that this is a an attempt to to get in with, with China and also that uh, overall that's probably better than what they were doing because even if you're just pretending to be decent you do have to be a little bit more decent if you want to pretend so i hope that happens yeah it seems like um i mean i would expect the sort of belt and road initiative thing that china is doing to um ultimately uh you know i mean that's going to span the entire continent you know and, and afghanistan oh, yeah being a sort of a passageway for the traditional roads of power in that region. Um, yeah, I definitely think that's on their radar. Um, but I, I also think that, um, I, I mean, Chinese imperialism is not the same. I mean, the, I don't think there's a thing like Chinese imperialism isn't a thing. They, they, they certainly help out Africa, but they're not like, they're not doing so in an American sort of stylistic way. Um, so I definitely think that like 
over the next uh, few years or so, we should see some like infusion of Chinese money into their economy and and yeah. you know. I but Afghanistan, I I get this uh, feeling that Afghanistan is kind of like uh, kind of like South Korea and North Korea, like. It's just in a region of land that's unfortunate. Like, it's going to be invaded. Yeah. Historically speaking, like, there's nothing you can do. You're going to have aggressors mm. on all side of you. You have different yeah. resources and things that are scarce in other parts of the region. And so, like, mm-hmm. it just seems like like it's in one of these regions that, I mean, Britain, uh, what, they, they had three wars there, yeah. you know? Um, and they're, like, one of the only uh, countries that have waged war in Afghanistan and not collapsed uh afterwards you know yeah um so so i wonder um what do you think is like so so going back to this whole like okay so we're, we're not in the war anymore we're, we're getting out of there um and the american psyche has to have an enemy um do you think china's like the big enemy at this point or that we're like pivoting towards china no, I, I definitely think we are. Um, I mean, certainly the Republicans have hard pivoted already. The the mythos that, especially like in the center and far right, I hate to say that that's the center right now, but you know, the Overton window do be shifting. Um, mm-hmm. The um, the idea is that communist China is in league with the Democrats to destroy America, but that does make communist China the outside enemy. And then, I mean, you had Biden. Biden's given speeches about how China has to be curtailed and stopped. And, you know, I'm not, I don't know. Um, you know, the China's, I'm not, I'm not team, you know, I don't think China's got the answers or anything. I don't particularly care for what they're doing in Xinjiang. And I don't, you know, they're, they're no way, they're not exactly, you know, beacons of, of nobility, but, um, yeah, it sure does look like that's going to be our next focus. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and, and so there's a lot of, uh, obviously like people think that, you know, that's going to be our focus, but I, but I also think that like, how do you proxy war against because you certainly can't confront them so like how do you proxy war you know that would be interesting won't it yeah because they're not really invading places they're not doing the thing they're just going in and helping people financially yeah how how do you it'll be real interesting to see and and i wonder because um you know when this show did some uh episodes on the uh stuff going on in, in in with the the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Xinjiang. Uh, Thank you. Sorry, um, too much reading. Not uh, Xinjiang, 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 you know, whatever it is. Yeah, Xinjiang. Uh, yeah. So uh, when we did those episodes, um, you know, I I, I pulled uh, an interview with Zbigniew Brzezinski, mm-hmm. and um, and and it was an interview where he was talking about how we were selling weapons to the Vietnamese. And and so to that end, I, I just want to say that like maybe uh, because I I think that like it obviously like the cat's out of the bag. Like we know that nuclear powers aren't going to confront each other. They choose to have proxy wars instead. Yeah. We we look at this in history, and and so we can kind of predict what that is moving forward. And, and so I wonder if like maybe selling of arms or other things similar to that would be a way of. Uh, waging these sort of proxy wars in a way that isn't an actual secondary mm. confrontation or something. Oh man, I could totally see that. That that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, especially because the military industrial complex would benefit tremendously from that. And we know they have the ear of people and that makes, that makes so much sense to me. Can I ask you like, after you came out of uh, the military, um, because and ironically, you did intelligence, which is like exactly what I wanted to do and what I told them I wanted. To, you know, so uh-huh. Damn. yeah, yeah, Damn I know, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but can I ask you if, like, uh, were you approached by any sort of like uh, uh, 
you know, military industrial complex. Like, did Raytheon like say, "Hey, send us your interview" or something like that? Uh, not Raytheon. I did get some offers for uh, for independent contractor work. Uh, I mm. I had a program. I had a um, a machine that um, basically uplinks to the the secret and top secret internet that the in, um, the military uses called the Trojan, mm-hmm. which led to a lot of fun jokes on base. But um, <laughs> I, I was pretty good at it actually. I I fixed a pretty major problem in the 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 light thing they you know recognized my efforts and they were like look come work for us and uh you know i thought about it and for sure i had a lot of friends who, who went into contracting work you know it was it was easy to get in those days you just send in your resume and they would hire you and i mean i thought about it i because there's oh my god is there money in it and um you know ultimately i decided i i wanted to just not be anywhere near the military and I wanted to try to make my own way. It wasn't at that point, it wasn't even really that ideological. I'd, I'd become disillusioned and it hadn't led me to other idealism yet. It just led me to think who gives a shit, what am I going to do for me? But, um, yeah, no, the, um, they get you, they, they will. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I, I imagine, I mean, like I, I worked in sales for a bit, and I was working for like a broadcast supply house, and and they had given me certain accounts, which are like Northrop Grumman, uh, people like uh, Level Three Communications, um, and, and things like that. And I, you know, it makes me wonder. Even back then, I mean, I don't know that my political consciousness was at the level to understand who I was selling to. I mean, I knew they were defense contractors, but I didn't know that. But I, but I certainly think back to that, and I'm wondering, like. Uh, you know, if anything I sold to them was, I, I maybe it was, it was probably used for nefarious purposes. You know, what else Oof. are a you know, weapons contractor going to do, you know, with stuff that you give them and stuff? So, yeah. yeah. So, I don't know, man. This whole Afghanistan thing and, and, and leaving behind, it it's, I feel like it's like history passing right now and nobody's really giving a shit, like, in a way. Yeah. Like, I mean, clearly, like, I mean... You know, there are people like yourself who write the articles about it, who uh, there's a lot of discussion happening. But it, but it feels like uh, like we've seen this whole movie before and that it's just not as uh, like people just. Uh, I mean, I don't know if this was the first time in, around in Vietnam. I think it would be a much bigger deal, but I just don't think that there's like I, I feel like this is passing through historical memory right now uh, in a much easier way than things like this have passed in the past. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's distressing to see that. It's it's like we've already, yeah, like you said, we've already seen this movie. We saw it in Vietnam and now it's a memory of the possible and it's very embarrassing and it's, you know, hard to look at because it's, uh, God, one of the most infuriating things I've seen on the internet recently, it was the, um, the tweet from the person who was part of the Institute for the Study of War. Um, she tweeted this thing about self-care and about how she told her fellow, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. No, she she like tweeted to her, you know, this this is a thing that I sent to my coworkers. And it was like, you know, how much do you really need to know about Afghanistan? You know, take care of yourself. Like, don't think about it. These people advocated for the fucking surge. They were like, you could say they were an architect of it. They were really, you know, and up, you know. The whole time they've been advocating for footprint in Afghanistan. They've been advocating for more troops. They, they've how and they're just gonna look away like because it hurts like fuck them i am it just you know this is this is exactly what you're talking about it's just gonna you know just don't think about it too hard guys you know yeah what was that meme what was that meme that was like hey there are you in a are you in a spot to receive some news that is potentially hurtful or something you know like yeah yeah, uh, oh my god oh my god yeah 
It's so ridiculous, man. I, I can't even believe that. Like, that it, how much do you know about Afghanistan practice, uh, self care? Jesus Christ, man. Um, so, do, do you think, like, do you have any praise for Biden at this point for pulling people out? Honestly, yeah, I do. Um, he got us out. You know, I don't like how he did it. I don't like that we screwed over the people who helped us. He got us out. And you know what? He he deflected the blame onto the Afghanis, and I, I don't like that. I don't like that he did that. But um, but he stuck to his guns on it, even when it was unpopular. And you know what? Good. Someone had to. He's going to take a hit for this, and I think he knows that. But he did it anyway, and I'll give him that much. You know? Did I? I I don't know if you heard this, but did I hear correctly in that speech? Did he call the president that of Afghanistan that fled? Did he call him a coward? I don't remember, but that feels like it feels correct. Oh, um, God. It, it was certainly implied, if not uh, outright stated. Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. No, really, really gross. Yeah. I. So, I mean, I, I in a way, I kind of feel like uh, Biden deserves some praise. But I also think that, like, you know, the dude was vice president for eight years as oh, yeah. well. And so he, mm-hmm. as much, I mean, maybe it can cancel out any praise that we would offer him at this point. That's like, you, yeah. you kind of maintain this. Um, I read yeah. somewhere that. When Obama uh, first took office, he invited some historians in uh, to speak with him about Afghanistan and 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 like how some of these things will be characterized later on. Mm-hmm. And one of them told Obama that he needs to get out of Afghanistan; it's going to end up being another Vietnam. And Barack just didn't invite the guy back to any subsequent meetings. <laughs> Ugh! Goddamn. Yeah, it sounds about right. Um, I, I do believe that there are records of Biden being against the surge. He didn't do anything about it. I'm not I'm not trying to heap praise on the man. I don't think he deserves that. But um, he has been a voice of, of um, I don't know, reason's a strong word. He's been a voice of, uh, hey, what if we look at reality a little bit? And, um, you know, he didn't manage to accomplish that while he was vice president. And um, But he did get us out. I'm glad he did that. Still not a fan, but you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I'm wondering if you have any memory of this stuff because, um, you know, I I think I vaguely remembered this stuff, but then going back to find articles about it, uh, confirm this stuff, and it's. But do you remember something called the Naraya testimony? I do not know. So there was like a. So there was, when we wanted to invade Iraq uh, and oust Saddam Hussein, um, we started making shit up. And there was a a young girl who addressed the United Nations. Her name was Naraya. And Uh she had testified that babies were being pulled from incubators uh, in Iraq. And it turned out that was the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter who had been... Oh asked to deliver the stuff right. Um, do you remember anything about a human shredder? I I don't. <laughs> that was um, oh my that god. Was, that was something that 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 was circulating in in media about uh, Saddam Hussein having a human shredder, basically. Um, oh my god! You know, I remember a lot of the like, you know, they they torture people for fun stuff. I didn't remember the human shredder. That's really quite something. Yeah, so like, uh, and these are all like, you know, things that are in old Washington, you know, Washington Post articles oh and God. stuff. And um, yeah. this stuff was brought to my attention. And I, you know, and it's, and it's 
I just, you know, I, I've been sort of obsessed with thinking about like the characterization of the historical memory and, and how things are characterized, but it's really important what things are kind of forgotten, yeah. what things uh, fade out. And, um, and I think everyone obviously remembers the weapons of mass destructions claim and we never found that. And then mm-hmm. we just kind of pretended like, uh, like, yeah, we're still searching for them. We'll find them. They're there. Yeah, and then we just kind of stopped talking about it. And then, <laughs> uh, and then one day the collective, you know, social sphere was like, uh, hey, yeah, whatever happened to those weapons, you know? And, mm-hmm. and gradually that kind of came to light. But, you know, I, I just feel like uh, part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you as well uh, is, is that uh, Given all the stuff happening now, I think it's really important that we fucking remember these moments and what happened. Um, yeah. Because I, I, I don't think, I mean, it, if we have learned anything to this point, it's that we will choose to invade somebody else and we will make shit up at that point and And we will move forward with that. And, yeah. and it's not until, you know, society or the American public says enough is enough that we'll actually stop doing these things. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's important to remember that stuff, but it's also like, I don't know if we can really, you know, you said something uh, in the last interview, which was really, like, it stuck with me and it's lingered. It, it's that, you know, in terms of when 9-11 happened, yeah, there was a lot of panic, but you said that there was like, you remember there being kind of like a feeling of relief, well, like, oh, thank God, we have an enemy now again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I it... it it was like you were saying earlier, it, it, we need one, we're structured around one. And suddenly it wasn't like the ennui of the nineties anymore. And now maybe we're back to the ennui of uh, not the nineties. I mean, that's the, the good news is we have an enemy. It's the, it's the other party. And uh, we can just step into that frame, especially, like I said, you know, the right with their, their ideas about China, the democratic party, you know, it's okay. It's okay. We well, we don't have to do the '90s again, guys. We got this. It's gonna be okay. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, we don't need a repeat of like Fred Durst and Limp Bizkit. Oh God, you know, for real though. <laughs> There's some benefits. It's okay. <laughs> mm. Holy shit. Oh my yeah, God. I mean, I don't know, man. I just I'm I'm looking at the news and I'm and I'm seeing what's going on, and I I'm just so grateful that you wrote that because it, it brought to the surface. Um, uh, you know, I I think that. I think the American public needs to understand the depth of like betrayal that we've done to people who have formerly assisted us in the region. Uh, I think that we need to understand that we we didn't accomplish a single fucking noble thing while we were there. You nope. know, like nope. Uh, and um, I mean that's twenty years that we were there, though. I mean, this is now the longest American war in history. Uh, we've now. I mean, I don't know. When when you were a kid, did your parents like somehow explain to you that the Vietnam War that we lost, and, and did that stick out in your mind? Because I remember learning about that as a kid, being like, "Wait a second, we we lost a war," yeah. you know? <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. No, I mean it. It was a weird concept, and now it, I wonder if that will change. If I mean. Honestly, I wonder if that would, well, that's a double-edged sword, but the the idea of America and Americans' minds as a country that loses war is going to be a very interesting place, because that is not the country we've lived in for uh, the history of America. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't reconcile well with American exceptionalism no. or, or like uh, America being number one and all that stuff. Well, and I think just, just saying that, I was about to say that maybe it'll be good, but I it also... Um, Reminds me a little bit of Weimar Germany 
um, where, mm. you know, the German conception of self was, was pretty rocked by World War One, And, um, you know, Ooh, the kind of wow. injury that that did to their, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'd love to be wrong. Yeah. That seems, yeah. Yeah, we get like this 10-minute reprieve whenever uh, uh, an empire loses a war before they go full fascist. Um, yeah. yeah, I, you know, I mean, I've been thinking about the, the whole Weimar Germany thing. Um, I I had uh, Professor Ronald Beener on the show, uh, and he uh, he wrote a book called Dangerous Minds, and, and we discussed all these characters like uh, the Alexander Dugins and the Richard Spencers and the, you know, Arctos Publishing and... Uh, and his whole thing was like talking about like Heidegger and Nietzsche are they too dangerous to read and we need to recommend some more serious engagement with these writers to take them at face value from the text of what they actually are because uh, they are held in high esteem by the political right and uh, and so in coming back to this Weimar Germany thing um, you know that there was. I guess I just in the way that it parallels now is that we've we see this resurgent right and we're just not really doing anything about it and and yeah. there are nationalist movements springing up everywhere and uh, and I think there are real parallels to like Weimar and, and now um, happening geopolitically as well um, so yeah it's funny that you bring up Weimar because that's another aspect I've been thinking of lately. Um, and and this certainly fits into that equation with like uh, trying to reconcile that we are a country that loses wars, and uh, and I think there leaves room for a sort of uh, uh, a sort of movement to 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 reclaim our place as a victorious sort of uh, powerful nation. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I uh, it'd be real neat if we didn't go down that road. We'll see. And, um, it seems like we're already we're already you know taken taken some significant steps down it already so yeah right right <laughs> <laughs> all right so so I, I I guess uh to change topics at this point man how was your um I know since the last time we spoke you actually you moved across the United States yes it did um what did you uh what was the inspiration for leaving Portland <laughs> Oh boy, you want you want to talk about this? I mean, we can. Well, I mean, I, I, well, look, I mean, you fascinate me, you know, and I, and I, and I think that you are, um, your perspectives and your stuff are like super interesting to me. And so, whenever someone like that makes a really big change, um, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's something worth diving into, certainly. Um, well, I'd, I'd applied to New York University. I wasn't sure I wanted to go, but I'd applied, you know, in November. Um, and then I, I got in, I got in in February and I wasn't sure, you know, my deadline for deciding was April 15th and uh, I wasn't sure. But, um, and at the same time, I was beginning to think that perhaps um, there were some things about anti-fascist action, which I, I do consider myself an anti-fascist, that um, mm -hmm. we could, that we were maybe focusing on some of the wrong things. Like there was a lot of focus on street fighting, which, you know, community defense is important, but also the idea that we got to go after the ideas. We have to go after the people that are feeding this crap to the, you know, the, the people on the ground. And, um, and just that there was, uh, there was some toxic elements to the community. And I started taking some baby steps to criticize that and um, came to the attention of some people who really didn't like that. And then all of a sudden I was um, painted as, as a fascist. Um, they 
took my thesis, which was an uh, it was a participant observation study of Patriot Prayer, which has been available on my website the whole time, and and acted like they'd like uncovered this horrible secret, and um, you know they took some things I said out of context in the thesis and and on the internet. Um, the, the, just it was it got really hateful. Um, there were it, it felt like anything that I said was. Um, taken in, in the worst possible light. And it seemed like people were, uh, you know, people uh, turned on me pretty quickly. There mm-hmm. were some pretty significant social uh, pressure to not associate with me, which a lot of people gave into. Um, I mm-hmm. was, at the, this ended with um, somebody encouraging the friend of somebody who is a domestic, uh, who's been convicted of domestic violence to reach out to me um, via DM and email. And I, you know, I responded and then when I figured out who this person was, I said, hey, can you uh, you want to explain that? And the guy was like, I'll tell you over coffee. And that was the point where I cut off contact completely. I'm like, this seems bad. Well, it turns out the whole thing was a fishing expedition. Next thing I know, everyone on the Internet is saying that I was you know, meeting for coffee with this guy and I was this abuse apologist. Um, and that is around the time that I got uh, physically removed from a May Day event um, by leftists who decided that I was no longer allowed to be part of the community. And at that point, there was uh, there was nothing left to do but leave. I decided earlier to go to New York after the after the fast jacketing. That was when I decided it was time to make a change. But um, I'd been intending to leave uh, right around now. Actually, I had been intending to go month to month on my lease and uh, stay for the summer and leave now. But when the May Day thing happened, I um, I woke up the next day and started packing. And within two weeks, I was gone. So, you know, that's 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 terrible. I I want to say that. I've found uh, so when someone does the work that you do and they infiltrate and they observe and they uncover and they publish a paper about it, there is so much useful information that the left absorbs at that point. Uh, It increases the efficacy of our tactics. It increases um, our knowledge of our enemies. um, And, uh, and, and it's, really valuable and needed information and so but all that comes at a cost and i think that it comes as a personal cost obviously to someone who uh who goes in and does that work that that walks that sort of ethnographical gray line yeah um and so i you are i mean i i i think so much of you just because you did that work and i you know i when i interviewed benjamin Teitelbaum. He wow. is another guy that, like, uh, you know, he sat in the same room with Alexander Dugan. Uh, he yeah. interviewed uh, Steve Bannon for hours. He was, uh, he met with, uh, uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, uh, Del Carvajal, the South American Brazilian oh. guy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so he, he, and, and, you know, he was meeting with people like Jason Giorgiani, uh, you know, like, like and and so he wrote this book about mm-hmm. all this stuff that yeah. served to sort of illustrate and really educate people on like what the fuck is traditionalism? Why do these share a, a common space with the far right? Um, and why is this important? How did this get into geopolitics? Um, but you know, Benjamin is also like, you know, he he's not. I mean, when I had Ronald Beaner on the show, he had some choice, like, scorched earth shit to say about Benjamin Teitelbaum. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was like, you know, do you need to, uh, 
embellish these people? Do you need to uh, befriend them? Do you need to become chummy with them in order to do this work? And, you know, I think if you ask Benjamin Teitelbaum that question, he would say yes, um, because, you know, Benjamin, like yourself, comes back to this, this space of like, you know, if you're going to admonish your kids, do it to their face, right? And stare at their face. Yeah. And yeah. so, and so the work that Benjamin does, much like the work that you do, is very much about uh, being in the same room in person with these subjects and, 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 and deliberately um, going past these boundaries that other people would not dare cross. And so I'm sure that's come at like quite a significant cost to you, um, as it has for Benjamin. And yeah. so I, I just to have the op I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to say thank you for the work that you do with that and and for enduring the sort of cost of that work. Well, I mean, thank you. That means a lot, um, especially because this is I mean, I, you know, this is probably my favorite podcast I've ever I've ever been on. Um, so it, it's just I don't know. I feel like the conversation is, is really good. Uh, and uh, I really, anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to get, get mushy. No, no, like no, like... no, 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 we don't have to get mushy. I just, but, uh... you know, but it's, but it's real, man. I mean, I, you know, part, that's part of the reason why I look up to you is I know that there's an emotional cost to doing this shit. And I know that you lose friends and you lose comrades and, 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 you know, I think it's a very, it's wild to have such a divisive, uh, you know, uh, friendship ruining sort of practice when what you're after is so acutely humanist, I suppose, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I really, and I think we talked about this last time I was on the yeah. idea that like we, we mistake compassion or understanding for like acceptance or like thinking that we can't hurt you know, or like fight back, I guess I should say. And that's just not the case. I, I'm going to use an example. People are going to really hate, um, Orson Scott Card's a monster. Let's get that out of the way. He's a piece of shit. No one should endorse him or pay for his books, but you should pirate Ender's game because there's a part in it where Mazer Rackham is the guy who trains Ender to, to do a colonialism on the buggers, uh, which is the name of the aliens. Um, yeah, lot to unpack there. But the the thing about it is that um, this idea that you have to understand them and even love them to kill them, and like mm. that really—I mean—that was my favorite book when I was a teenager, and that, that has always stuck with me. Like this idea that like if you really want to defeat something, you have to you have to get in there. You have to really understand what it is, and I, I stand by that, and I understand that it's uncomfortable. I get it, like. I have some too. real bones to pick with my high school English teacher because my freshman year, fucking Ender's Game was on the list of required reading, uh -huh. but also Ayn Rand's Anthem was oh as well. <laughs> yeah, right, oh right. Oh so boy. I mean, she's like friends with me on Facebook, and I've I've considered like just uh, being like, "Hey, listen, <laughs> we need to talk about your reading list, woman." You know? Excuse me, what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, I didn't, yeah. I didn't understand at the time. I'm like, cool, science fiction. This is great. Right. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the idea that you have to love something in order to 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 kill it, like you have to come to this understanding. I mean, and maybe I mean that's that's part of the equation which is missing is the natural sort of human inclinations and incentives that would take someone down such a road that is like opposite to where any of us want to go yeah. you know like uh you know things like uh like for instance uh richard spencer 
became what he called black-pilled after he read Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. So to me, I'm like, so what the fuck is inside of Nietzsche that right. does this? You know, and 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 I want to understand that, not because I want to sympathize with Spencer no. or anything, but because I but because I want to know how point A got to point B with that. Right. And, and so so when we are examining the social, it's 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 I think it can be easily misconstrued that we are um, sympathizing or showing undue compassion towards uh, folks uh, and the far right um, when we're simply trying to gain a better understanding because these folks are they are interesting as shit you know so I mean, fascinating folks it's <laughs> I mean it's uh, yeah and, and I mean if you want to stop people from getting from point A to point B understanding that journey seems important like you know leftists are supposed to be the ones that really understand that the system is what makes people what they are you know there's the idea of systemic racism being the problem systemic causes systemic classes and you know stuff like this and you want to disrupt the system I mean there's, I feel like it's the same thing here like these guys are in a machine you got to break the machine you can't break the guys like you can it's fine i'm not you know do what you got to do but it's not going to stop the machine there will be more guys right like what kind of leftists are we if we're not trying to uh you know under i mean if we're not i mean that you're exactly right it's like it's a system that causes this it's kind of like a jean-jacques rousseau thing of like uh humans are perfect but then it's society which corrupts them and taking that into like a contemporary leftist approach is just like hey uh mm-hmm. human beings are humans and vulnerable to incentives and and persuasion yeah. and stuff like that but it is the system ultimately that uh sort of corrals them into these spaces um given their particular life experience and i think it would be uh we would be in error if we didn't try to understand what those particular uh, life experiences are that lead them to these pathways. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Cool. <laughs> 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 All right. So um, I, I'm just really happy to have you back on the show and talk to you. And I'm, and I'm happy to have you on the East Coast. If they don't want you on the West Coast, we're happy to have you over here. Good to and, be here. Uh, yeah, and if you are ever in Woodstock, you have to come by this little place called Pearl Moon, because um, I'm fucking always there, and I always have a band in there, and, uh, and yeah. I would I would love to hang out with you in Woodstock sometime if you ever make it upstate. Sounds amazing. Yeah, um, I would love that, and if you ever find yourself in uh, this gigantic city, you know, look me up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm in here somewhere. I don't know where yet, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right. Laura Jadid is a journalist with opinions. You can find her writings on laurajadid.com. Her latest article is called Afghanistan Meant Nothing, available on Medium. And you can check the show notes for all of her social information. Thank you, Laura, so much for joining us. And uh, we're always happy to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here.
spring and all of those things. 